Hey, it's Kathy. I have something so fun to tell you about. You may know that the doors are open to my new program, The Abundance Method, but if you enroll by May 15th at 11.59 p.m. Pacific, you're going to get my signature business program also made to do this. That's a $3,000 program that you are going to get for free, included if you sign up by May 15th, just before midnight Pacific time. Made to do this is a phenomenal program that has helped thousands of souls to start businesses, to be able to make a living doing something that they love. This is an incredible deal. You don't want to miss it. Go ahead and sign up at kathyheller.com slash join. Look at the sky. Look at what's growing. Don't run. When you run at the, the beach, you don't see all the flowers and whatever is along the road and all that. Walk slowly. Look at what's there. You look, you taste, you, you smell, and you feel happy. Thanks to Shopify for supporting The Kathy Heller Show. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving entrepreneurs like myself the resources once reserved for big business. For a free 14-day trial and full access to Shopify's entire suite of features, go to shopify.com slash dreamjob. Also, thanks to ShipStation. With ShipStation, your small business can now access the same rates usually reserved for Fortune 500 companies without the contracts or commitments. Use my offer code dreamjob to get a 60-day free trial. Make ship happen. And thanks to BetterHelp. For 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com slash dreamjob. Start living a better life today. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller Show. So I have been home sick with COVID since last Tuesday. And, um, you know, it's amazing when you're sick and you have no choice but to fully stop and rest. It's just amazing the opportunity to really show up in the present moment. And it's interesting because this past weekend, we just celebrated a Jewish holiday. It's a lesser known holiday. It's called Tu Bishvat. It's actually the, the day we celebrate nature and the trees specifically. And I was just reflecting on how when you look at nature, it's just so still and everything is working in perfect order and nothing's rushing and it all has everything that it needs right there. And when you look at trees, you look at how they just reach for the sunshine and they stand so tall. And what a lesson that is for us. How unapologetically everything in nature is blooming all around us. Because everything that God created was designed to bloom to its full potential. And just like plants drink in the energy from the sun and turn that into photosynthesis, so we are meant to align with our highest self and to connect with our source and drink in as much energy as we can. And the more we fill up and the more we expand, the more we fill up the world. The more we bloom, the more we create oxygen, so to speak, for everything around us. So this idea of holding back or playing small, it's actually false humility 
the most humble thing that we can do is to grow as tall as we can. Just as an acorn holds the blueprint for a mighty oak tree, our soul has the map for our potential. And being the greatest expression of who we are is the most important gift that we give to the world. So speaking of all of that, next week, starting Monday, January 24th, I will be live every day for five days doing a free five-day challenge called Most Abundant Year. And I'm going to help you usher in the best, most expansive year yet. Because it's all about learning how to tune in, how to receive, how to overcome what gets in the way of allowing us to live the most radiant lives. So if you want to join me, it's free. You can go to kathyheller.com slash abundance, grab your seat. And whether or not you can be with us live, I'll still send you the replay of every day's training. And I think that this is going to light you up like nothing else. So you don't want to miss that. Today, we have a legend of the culinary world joining us. His name is Jacques Pepin. He's an award-winning chef, TV host, best-selling cookbook author, instructor, and fine artist. A lot of you might know him from his cooking series, including the iconic TV show, Julia and Jack's Cooking at Home. He co-starred in that with Julia Child. He's won numerous James Beard Awards and a Daytime Emmy Lifetime Achievement Award. Plus, he was awarded France's highest distinction, the Legion of Honor. Jacques has written 30 cookbooks, including Quick and Simple, A Grandfather's Lessons, Essential Pippin, and tons more that are filled with yummy, classic, and doable recipes. So if you're like me and you usually feel overwhelmed in the kitchen, go grab yourself a copy. He also has the Jacques Pepin Foundation, which supports free culinary and life skills training to help people excluded from the workforce gain confidence, skills, and employment in food service. If that wasn't enough, Jacques has also written for the New York Times, Food and Wine. He's taught for over 30 years at the Culinary Arts Program at Boston University, and he served as Dean of Special Programs at the International Culinary Center in New York City. This man's generosity and passion for food knows no limits, and it was such a gift to have this opportunity to sit down with him for such a delicious conversation about how food and cooking can be such a pure expression of love and community. If you are not already a fan, I know that you are going to love him. So without further ado, please welcome the one and only Jacques Pepin. Thank you so much for making the time out of your very busy life to be with me today. Thank you for having me. You are so lovable. And I was about to say that to you before you just said something nice to me because you have this just endearing. It's very unique when I meet people who are as famous and accomplished as you are and yet just the sweetest soul just coming right through your face. Well, that's what happens when you get old, you know. So I don't think so. I feel like this <laughs> is the secret to your success. So um, you've done all of the things. <laughs> and you're, you're world-renowned in so many different ways. But I don't know how you started. Were you like yeah. sitting in the kitchen as a child make, making things? Where does this well, go back to? Back to my mother. I mean, when I was a child... In fact, in France, I can count 12 restaurants in my family, 12 of them run by women, you know, uh, my two aunts, my three aunts, cousins, and my mother are several restaurants. So, you know, since I was five, six years old, I was in a restaurant kitchen. 
And the world was quite different than it is now. I mean, we didn't have the telephone even. Uh, so we didn't have a radio or the telephone or television, of course, computer and so forth. So uh, life was much, much simpler than now. So my father was a cabinet maker. So my life was going to be cabinet maker or a cook. So I had blinders, <laughs> had blinders on my eyes, you know. Life was much easier. So I got more excited by the kitchen. So I start, you know, as I said, from age five, six, I was in the kitchen. And eventually, I finished primary school in France. In fact, I was ahead. I was 13 years old only. And I, I left as soon as I finished. To, to, I left home to get into a formal apprenticeship uh, when I was 13. So that was in 1949. Way before you were born, maybe even your mother wasn't even born. <laughs> it's a long time ago. So I've been in the kitchen, what, uh, 72 years or something like that? I mean, it's a, but, absolutely an incredible story. And it's, it's very sweet when you said it was actually so simple. It was either be a cabinet maker or get in the kitchen. But yeah. I imagine because of the success that you've had to such epic proportions that all those other women in your family... <laughs> never reached as many people with their food as you did. So oh, that, that, that's interesting that you said that because that's not true. I remember, I mean, at some point between 56 and 58 before I came to this country, I was chef to the French president and I was with uh, the last one, but the goal to, and I remember going back home and going to my aunt who had a restaurant to getting into the kitchen. She would push me out. She said, you dirty too many pots, you do too many. No one but I press at all. <laughs> I was the chef to the president. So no, those women were pretty formidable women. They were not very easily impressed. <laughs> Amazing. When did something shift and you started to realize, oh my gosh, this is not just going to be something I do. This is going to be something... I'm doing for the world. When did that happen? Well, I don't really know whether I had that type of moment, but certainly when I came to America, it was 1959, and I did not intend to stay. Uh, everyone wanted to come to America. So the war America was and still is like the, you know, the golden fleece or the, you know, the Eldorado. So uh, I say I'll go there. I spent a year, two years, and I come back because. Most people come to America because of, uh, let's say, economic condition to get a better life for religious reason or uh, racial reason or political reason, any of those things. I didn't have any of this. My parents had a restaurant. I had a good job in Paris. But I wanted to come to America. I shall stay a year, two years. And as soon as I came to New York, I loved it and uh, never went back. So then I could do many things that probably I would never have done in France, like certainly going back to school. And I say I left school when I was 13 years old. And there I came here in 1959, three weeks after I was here, I was enrolled at Columbia University in New York, you know, English for foreign students. And I went from 1959 to 1973. I studied at Columbia. <laughs> I was working. I was working, but I studied at that so I studied a long, long time. Eventually, I was doing a PhD, but they refused my thesis anyway. But they gave me a PhD a few years ago. But the thesis was the history of food in the context civilization literature. And at that time, they said, food? Are you crazy? <laughs> so totally different than it would be now. I, I have actually... 
a BA in philosophy and a master in literature. So that had really had nothing to do with food. But yet, in, uh, in the mid 80s, uh, I ended up creating a program with Julia Child at, uh, at Boston University. I am, I'm still teaching at BU. So a program on, uh, we wanted to do something in, in gastronomy and uh, undergraduate, but the, the president at the time wanted to do it in the graduate school. So we, we set up a master of liberal arts with a concentration in gastronomy, you know, and it's still on now, maybe one of the only places to my knowledge in the country where we do that, you know, so. That's so fascinating. And, and what was it, do you think, how has it been that your study of philosophy and everything else, do you think played a role actually in the way that you've shown up in your work? That's an interesting question. The point is that, you know, as a kid, as I say, I left school at 13 years old and in the tradition in France, certainly the cooks stay in the kitchen. So uh, any good mother, when I was a kid, would have married a child to a doctor, a lawyer, but certainly not a cook. The cook was really at the bottom of the social scale. Now we are genius. I don't know what happened, but uh, <laughs> anyway. So it was totally different. So, you know, I tell you that uh, all those studies that I did for so many years, Psychologically, were very important to me. Uh, I gave the commencement address actually at Columbia a few years ago. And I remember telling the student at the end, education is very important. I am paraphrasing uh, Gilbert Sullivan, I believe. Without an education, you're likely to fall in the deadly danger of taking educated people seriously. So uh, it's very important to have an education so you don't have a complex about it. So at some point, in fact, when I was at Columbia too, I could have taught literature. I did actually give some class at the Wesleyan University here. But eventually I went back to cooking because it's really what I like the best, what I do the best. But of course, I started writing recipe. You know, for 10 years, I I had a colony in the New York Times in the 80s. So, you know, I started more in the direction of writing and doing things. And also, yes, something very important in the the mid-70s. In 74, I had a very, very bad accident. I had 12 fractures. I broke my back, my pelvis in four places, leg, arm, shoulder. So, you know, that pushed me back out of the kitchen also. That was kind of a, a catalyst, if you want, to, for me to get involved into giving classes or, or writing about food or doing many things that I do because all of that is easier than, the, you know, 12 hours a day behind the stove in a regular restaurant. Wow. You're such a well-rounded, grounded person. I'm not surprised that you wound up on television because I think that there's more to being on screen than just being myopic. Like you're good at cooking. There's something inside the person that comes through and it comes through you. How did you like being on TV? How do you enjoy being in front of the camera? It was fine as long as I did what I do, which is cooking, that I felt comfortable. You know, so but I remember even when I was working with Julia 30 years ago, she uh, always told me, you know, you, you are too serious. You know, I mean, this is cooking. This is entertainment. <laughs> this is entertainment. It's television. You got to lighten up. And that was good advice. Uh, however, I have to say that each time we did any show, at the end of the show, she would say, okay, what did we teach today? So there was always the teaching element, which was important. So, you know, I fall into television at the beginning. It wasn't that 
big deal either. Uh, as I said, I, I did feel relatively comfortable because it was something that I knew how to do and wanted to do and so forth. You have to realize that life has changed, as I say, a great deal. I work at the Pavilion in New York when I came in 1959. And in 1960, I was offered the job at the White House for Kennedy at that time. I didn't take it. I went to work for Howard Johnson, you know, which I worked for like 10 years. I mean, the point is I'm saying that only to say that you have to look at it in the context of the time. At that time, certainly when I was with the president in France, I'd never been on a, on, a, on, a, on a magazine that didn't exist, on a, on a radio, television barely existed. No one would ever call you to the dining room to get kudo or whatever. That did not exist. If anyone come to the kitchen, it was to complain about something. So there was really no prestige in what we were doing. So I have to say that probably at that moment when I was invited to go to the White House, I had no inkling, no idea of the potential to because it wasn't wasn't the way it was at the time. As I say, any good mother wanted her child to marry a lawyer, not a cook. You have so much humility about you, but the oh. fact is that you're you're extremely famous. So how has that changed you at all? How has that changed I, I, your life? I'm not really famous, you know. Oh we're all God. famous. We're all famous in our mini world. You know, you're in a mini world of cooking, so you go, yes, people know me. If I am uh, with doctor or with an architect in the mini world of architecture, they will say, who's this? Jack, I've never heard of the guy. Over. So we all live in those kind of mini worlds, of course. Yes, I have done many books, and uh, now I'm doing those shows for my daughter on Facebook since uh, the, the pandemic started. You know, she wanted me to do those, and I've done like 150 of those. So. Everybody loves it. Everybody yeah. loves it. Let me ask you this, because there are so many people who give up on the road to mastering something. And I think that we can safely say that you're a master at, at cooking and, and what you do. How do you become a master at cooking? What do you think it takes? Well, you go through a certain road. Everyone is different. For me, I was trained started with my mother and all that. So food was really important. Food was always a way of communicating in many ways. And I, I, I thought that I did the same thing with my daughter, hopefully. I mean, there is a comment, she was two years old. I hold her in my arm so she could stir the pot. And so she could ate it because she made it, you know, <laughs> with her dad. So, you know, I had my granddaughter come to my house when she was three, four years old. I sat her next to me on the stool. And uh, I said, okay, give me a bowl here. Give me that. Can you help me watch the salad? Okay, let's go to the garden. Give me some parsley. I said, no, that's not parsley. That's sharp. Taste that. That's sharp. That's parsley. That's... And I take her to the market. I said, get some apple. Maybe you'll get some pear. Make sure they are ripe. Did you smell them? You think they are ripe? You know, so the kid get involved with the food, touching it, too, helping. And that's bring a kind of canvas, you know, for me, for discussion, because what do you discuss with a kid 10, 12 years old, you know? So there you talk about food, and more importantly, you sit down around the table and you share the food, and that brings some other conversation. So the, the food for us, you know, family was always important. So I grew this way. Certainly when I work in the big restaurants, I work in Paris or in New York, other young chefs, you tend to add, I did things much more fancy than I would do now. And you tend to add and to add and to add more to the plate too. 
I'm 85 years old now. That I take away, take away, take away from the plate to be left with something more essential, like a tomato out of the garden at the right temperature with a bit of salt, olive oil on top, and I don't need any more embellishments on the plate, you know. But this is a question of your metabolism changing, getting older. You know, I eat a lot of soup, simple stuff now because that's the way things are. You know, you go through life and you change. It's beautiful what you shared about your daughter and how you communicated with her. And I was working with a nutritionist and she said to me, you know, food is love. And if you don't have five minutes to make yourself avocado toast or something healthy for yourself, you're not loving yourself. And I find that in America, especially nobody sits and lingers. Everybody eats fast food, fast, fast, fast. And we've lost the ability to nurture ourselves and our children with food. And so the only time we'll use food for love is to pour ourselves a glass of wine, which is really right. not about the food. It's about escaping from pain. So right. how, how can we come back to food and make it feel like love rather than I have to be skinny and I can't enjoy my food? And what is that all about? It's gotten in the way of, I think, right. what food really about what's your perspective on that yeah i think you're right i think what mark twain who said you know cooking is the purest expression of love there is no other implication it's just to please someone else and that someone else can be your wife or your grandmother your kid or your cousin or a friend so yes it's a purest expression of love you are always cook for the other and that you give a lot when you cook so you know you can start very small by having the kid make as a little sandwich, a little something, you know, that you put together, put one thing with another thing together and say, test it. Have you ever tested, you know, that little piece of pound cake you want to, let's put a, a tablespoon of apricot jam on top. You'll see how good it is to and this and that. And then sit down, you know, and don't let the people use their, their iPhone. <laughs> when you sit down, sit down together. This is the worst part of it when I go to a family and uh, the guy is eating a sandwich and his woman, his wife is sitting on the, somewhere else eating something. The kids are looking at the thing, eating separately. That's the worst thing you can do. You have to spend time together. I mean, when Claudine was 10, 12 years old going to school, always one hour at night, at least an hour, we sit around the table. It wasn't always pleasant, you know, <laughs> but we had discussion. At least we spoke. And you know, the kid, the kid get crazy, love uh, string beans for like three weeks and they hate string beans. And then they don't like it. I mean, we never, never discussed the menu when I was a kid. You know, this is what we ate. This is what I did tonight. It's not a restaurant. It's not like someone is going to, I don't like this and I don't like that. Meaning that my daughter ended up loving like Brussels sprouts and artichoke better than some other vegetable because when she ate spinach or something, it's not like we went on our knees and say, oh my God, she had spinach. No, we never even mentioned it. You, you know, eat that the way it is. You put it around the table, which is what people do in most part of the world. If you go to Africa or to China or most of Europe, people would put food on the table. They sit around the table, eat. There is no discussion. I don't like this. I like this. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, you, you got to get back together like that. It's a very, very, I mean, for me, you know, the eating together is the culmination of the day, you know, being together, having a drink, sharing a bottle of wine and eating together is very, very important in my life. 
You know, I read that with Rhodes Scholars, people who get the Rhodes Scholarship, they wanted to see like, what did they have in common? And the number one thing that all the kids had in common who got the Rhodes Scholarship, it's not their parents' income and it wasn't where they're from. It was the fact that they ate dinner together as a family, that they spoke to their parents at the dinner table. That's what they all had in common, that that creates a level of of a human being where they, yes. they are smarter because they've had a consistent conversation about their day with their family. Not only that, you know, the food that you eat as a child is very visceral. You know, those tastes, those tastes stay with you the rest of your life. I mean, I've eaten the greatest restaurant in the world with the greatest chef. You know what I remember? I remember those dishes. And then if I close my eyes and you give me the, the, the chicken that my mother used to do, I say, that's my mother's chicken. Or oh, that's my wife, this. Or this is the lobster souffle of the plaza in Paris. Or the striped bass of the pavilion in New York. Those tastes remain with you and are very, very important and very essential. You know, in uh, Marcel Proust's Remembering of Think Past, he talks about uh, the affective memory, that is the memory of the senses as opposed to the memory of the brain. Memory of the brain, if you ask me, where were you 10 years ago? My brain is going to work for us, so I was there. The memory, the affective memory, the memory of the senses has to do with the smell, the taste, the touch, the eyesight, and all that. So I'm walking with my dog in the, in the wood in summer looking for mushrooms. I'm not, talking, not thinking about anything. And all of a sudden, I smell those mushrooms, wild mushrooms, and all of a sudden, I am eight years old, yeah. going wild mushroom with my father and my brother. You know, so those tastes, those memory of the senses, of the smell, of the taste, and all that are very, very powerful. They assail you when you don't even expect it. You know, and very powerfully. You know, so you taste something or see something. And Proust talks about that because of the little Madeleine, the little cake that uh, he was talking about when he dipped it in the tea, all of a sudden he felt very strange and he didn't know what it was and he realized that it was the cake that his aunt used to do during his vacation in the summer along the coast of Normandy. And with that taste, which he recalled came the whole kitchen and his aunt and basically the whole village, as he said, came out of his- uh, I his love it. So sweet. Yeah. My daughter, my four-year-old, her name is Madeline because of the cookies. I love oh. those cookies. Um, oh, and I was eating them about a week before she was born. And I said, this is it. What's sweeter than this? This conversation is so good. Before we keep going, I just want to thank our sponsors. So you made it through the holiday rush with shipping delays, supply shortages, and crazy demand. Now you're ringing in the new year with impatient customers, returns, and expensive shipping rates. It's time to switch to a shipping solution that can handle it all painlessly. ShipStation, the easiest and most convenient choice for e-commerce sellers. You can import orders from any sales channel, ship using any carrier with deeply discounted rates, and automate just about any shipping task. I love that ShipStation saves time, money, and sanity so that we have more bandwidth to focus on the other parts of business that really get us excited. 
I know a lot of you sell your products on different platforms, which can get overwhelming, but ShipStation funnels all your orders into one simple interface that you can manage anywhere, even on your phone. And with ShipStation, you can compare carrier options and choose the best shipping solution. So you're getting the same discounted rates usually reserved for Fortune 500 companies without the contracts or commitments. ShipStation makes shipping the easy part of having an online store. No wonder 98% of companies that use ShipStation for a year keep using it as long as they're in business. It's that good. Ship more in less time with ShipStation. You can use my offer code DREAMJOB to get a 60-day free trial. That's two months free of no hassle, stress-free shipping. Just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page, and type in DREAMJOB. ShipStation, make ship happen. We're at the start of the new year, which means some of us probably made resolutions to be happier and achieve our goals. But when we're coming up against our resistance, it can help to talk to someone like a therapist from BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours, all without having to sit in any waiting room. Anything you share is completely confidential, and BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. You can even get financial aid. Plus, they offer a broad range of expertise like relationships, depression, stress, anxiety, trauma, self-esteem, and so much more. When I'm getting in my own way, I find it so helpful to talk to someone with an outside perspective. Therapy has been such a powerful resource throughout my life, and I love that BetterHelp is making this accessible and affordable for more people. Start living a happier life today. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash dreamjob. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. That's better, H-E-L-P dot com slash dream job for 10% off your first month. Thanks, BetterHelp. I'm just curious. Are you here still? Are you in Boston? Are you in New York? Or are you back in Europe? No, 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 no. no. I am in, uh, in Connecticut. You didn't record that by Yankee Droll. <laughs> well, I know that you've worked no, at BU and New York. And I'm yeah. like, where is he? Boston? I, know. I, live, I live in Madison, Connecticut. For the last, we moved here in 1976 uh, in the house where you see the wall of path I behind me. And this is, uh, it used to be a brick factory, that, that house that we have, yes. So in the, in the 60s or whatever. So. so what is it like for you coming from a culture that's so rich with people knowing how to enjoy life and food and time? You know, people in Europe, they make time for time. They make time to enjoy right. life. And being here for so long... What have you noticed about the difference? Well, what I've noticed is that America is getting much more like Europe, or Europe is getting much more than America. Uh, the point is that when I came here, I live on the 50th and uh, between 1st, 2nd Avenue in New York. I remember going to the market and uh, asking people supermarket. First time that I saw a supermarket, which I thought was great, instead of going to like 50. <laughs> 15 different stores. You could go to one store and have everything there. But I remember telling people, where are the mushrooms? They say, aisle five. Aisle five are canned mushrooms. There was no fresh mushroom at the time. You know, you didn't have any fresh, different type of oil, vinegar, all kind of herb, uh, basil, or, or, or parsley, even, and so forth. Now, I go to the supermarket. I have 10 different types of mushrooms. I have more oil than I ever had in France. I mean, the supermarkets have never been as beautiful as they are today. Uh, in, New York, in New York, there was, there is or there was, 24,000 restaurants. Uh, and the ethnicity that you have in a place like New York is unmatched anywhere in the world. That's where you can. So America has moved amazingly. There was no wine where I can be. People didn't do bread. People didn't do cheese. Now there is extraordinary American cheese. 
people who make bread, there is fantastic American wine, there is all this, and the food, yeah, has changed. So yes, there are, the, the, the country is more polarized than it used to be. I mean, uh, in the 50s, 60s, and all that, everyone basically ate the same thing. Food was always very cheap here. You know, even the rich people, very rich, would have basically the same thing that other people eat. You could afford it. Now, it's totally, totally different. You have the, the people in the fast food area who eat day after day after day the same three or four or five dishes too. And you have people who take vacation to go in Italy and France to visit uh, wine or who take cruise who are very, very involved in food, very involved. So, you know, it, it, it's not as it used to be. There is different type of people now. You're so right. And, you know, I just heard Dr. Joe Dispenza, he studies the body and neuroscience. And he, I heard him say that even though he's so into health and mindfulness and all this, he said, I'm also into cooking and wine and moderation. I don't deprive myself of meat or cheese or all this. And he said that the science shows that you'd be better off eating the cheese and enjoying yourself than feeling guilt and shame because the guilt and shame is actually poisonous in the body. It creates cortisol and all this. And I don't think Americans get this. I think that we believe that to be healthy, we need to deprive ourselves of a lot of things. But when I go to Europe, I see people who are not obese and they're eating good food. So how do we, how do we understand this? This is a Puritan, a Puritan leftover idea. Yes, without any question. I don't know if you remember Molly Schaeffer, who was on 60 Minutes. Uh, he, he lived next door here. and I was friends with him for many years. And he's the one who years ago went to France and did that thing on 60 Minutes about the French drinking red wine, particularly, which was better for your health and so forth, too, in moderation. But what we say in France, what's important, is moderation in moderation. You cannot be too moderate, you know. So right. anyway, there was a, a, a guy at Boston University, a doctor there who went with Molly Schaeffer to do those studies in France. And I became friends with him too. He told me that at that point, he was studying not only the wine effect in France, but the cheese. The French had done study on cheese, but cheese done, no cheese, which are like three months, uh, you know, package of sliced cheese or whatever. But cheese which leave, like a camembert will get old too and die, and eventually done with raw milk and all that. And the effect of it, they have done study uh, that it doesn't, it's very good for you, in fact, and it doesn't raise any of uh, what people said cheese does. So again, it's a question of the quality of our ingredient too. Anyway, that study, I say, why don't you continue that study? He said, I tried to do it in this country, but no one is interested in cheese. That was years ago. So uh, you cannot get the the sponsorship or you know, the help to do that. You know? So, yeah, it's true. I don't think that there is anything, anything that uh, you eat which is bad for you. I have no taboo. You know, the, the only thing is to remember to eat things as fresh as possible and to follow the season. The greatest thing is to follow the season. When you have a tomato in full summer, it costs half of the price than in the winter. Uh, nutritionally, it's the best. More importantly, the best in taste, the cheapest, and the best nutritionally because it's in season. Same thing with strawberries, string beans, or anything like that. So try to follow the season, which is not always easy because in the supermarket, you get uh, 
you know, you get stuff year round, the same stuff very often, you know. That yeah. makes so much sense. So one question is, I'm curious, what's your favorite thing to eat? What's your favorite dish? Bread and butter, you know. If you have the greatest bread in the world and the greatest butter, it's hard to beat bread, bread and butter. <laughs> what kind of bread do you make that you love? That's a good point also, because I make all kinds of bread from baguette to big bread to whatever. In France, no one ever make bread because the boulanger, the bread maker, make it much better than you can do it, you know. And here, if I find a good, and there is a couple of places where I can find good bread, if they do it better than I, I do, I have absolutely no problem going to buy bread. I mean, you know, there is another thing too. The term homemade has gotten kind of a religious experience. My God, it's homemade. I've been to people who make their own ketchup, which is disgusting. You know, so buy ketchup. You know, in France, you're not never going to buy pate or bread or anything like that. You go to the charcuterie, you does it much better than you can do it most of the time. So you go buy it. Sure, I have no problem. So speaking of making stuff homemade, your newest book, Quick and Simple, and this is so important because most of us are too busy, unfortunately. And now, especially with the pandemic, we, we have to learn to cook because so many yeah. things are not available the way that they were. And so we need to do this. So how do we do this? How do we approach this without feeling overwhelmed? Most of us didn't grow up knowing how to do any of this stuff. Right. No, you're right. I mean, uh, uh, I have done 30 cookbooks, you know, some cookbook or some when I was a kid. I kill the chicken, I plug the chicken, oh I eviscerate the chicken. We do the thing. That's what we did as an apprentice and all that. That's what I, I did in some, maybe some of the best cookbooks that I've done. But it's another world here. Here I'm using the supermarket as a prep cook. See, when I have, you have a chef in a restaurant, you have the prep cook who come in the morning. What do they do? He bought out the chicken, he bought out the fish, he slides the mushroom, he washes the spinach, he shoves the shallot, he does all of that for you. When I come to the stove and someone orders a piece of fish, well, the filet is right there, I grab it, a bit of shallot, a bit of mushroom, dash of wine, cook it three minutes, finish it with a piece of butter. I've done that dish in like five, six minutes because I have all that prep ready for me. Exactly. I use, I use the supermarket as a prep cook. So you go to the supermarket, you have boneless, skinless breast of chicken, you have pre-washed spinach, you have pre-sliced mushroom, you use a non-stick pan, and you use that, and within 10 minutes, you do a dish. You use the supermarket the right way, and it's very fresh. You can get good stuff. You make it sound so easy. Oh, my gosh. But I feel like it's not easy because I feel overwhelmed. I have to stop well, you, feeling you, overwhelmed. Yeah, no, you have to get into it. I mean, people tell me, I don't know how to cook. What do I do? I said, do you have a friend who don't know how to cook? Next time you go to her house, say, can I come an hour ahead and work with you? So you go an hour ahead, you bring a bottle of wine. By the time you drink that bottle of wine, who cares if the chicken is a big girl? <laughs> I have a few more questions for you, but first a quick ad break. I love that sound. It's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify is more than a store. You can connect with your customers, drive sales, and manage your day-to-day. -day. Supercharge your knowledge, your sales, and your success. For a free 14-day trial, go to shopify.com slash dreamjob, 
all lowercase. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere. They give you the tools to manage and drive sales, plus resources that were once reserved for big business with a great looking online store that brings your idea to life and opens endless possibilities. I love how Shopify makes it easy for anyone to open their online store and bring in more business. There's no coding or design experience required. And if you need help, they have a 24 seven support team. Shopify powers over 1.7 million entrepreneurs from first sale to full scale. And every 28 seconds, a small business owner makes their first sale on Shopify. Gain knowledge and confidence with resources to help you succeed. More than a store, Shopify grows with you. This is a possibility powered by Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash dreamjob, all lowercase, for a free 14-day trial and get full access to Shopify's entire suite of features. Start selling on Shopify today. Go to shopify.com slash dreamjob right now. I feel like part of it is coming up with something different to make every night. I feel this pressure that as a mother... I can't yeah. make the same thing every day. So I need like at least four or five things to make. So what would yeah. you say are the go-to, what's like a staple go-to couple things that we should all know how to make? Well, certainly for me, you know, I, I, I never throw anything out. You know, I use leftover too. So what my, my wife called fridge soup, the fridge soup, I opened the refrigerator. I have half a carrot, a piece of zucchini, some wilted lettuce, I take all of that, put it in a pot with chicken stock or water with a tablespoon of chicken base, bring it to a boil, boil it 10 minutes, put a handful of thin uh, pasta in it or oatmeal or couscous or uh, grits or anything like that to thicken it, cook it five minutes. I have a soup, a piece of butter on top, I do a soup. So, you know, yes, don't throw anything out. And uh, the more you do that, the more you get used to it, it becomes more naturally, you know. That sounds so good. <laughs> I think that there's something that's it, the whole house feels like love when you walk in a house and it smells like the kitchen. That's that's exactly what I say. When the kid comes back to school, when I was a kid, I eat one in the kitchen that we say. And the smell of that kitchen and the noise of the kitchen and the voice of your parents or your mother, your father, the playing of the instrument, the taste of the food, that stay with you the rest of your life. This is the most secure best place in the world you know food bring food is memory what do you think that those kids in afghanistan are in uh, you know fighting kids who are 20 22 years old what do you think they dream of at night they dream of the clam chowder that his mother is doing or the southern fried chicken his father used to do so at that point the food has transcended the level of physiological function of food the food has become memory it has become love, it has become home, it has become security, it has become all of this. Very important. So sweet. Speaking of home, I'm just curious, tell me what's, what your daughter, where is she at in her life at this point? Well, she li they live in Rhode Island, very close to me. And my, 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 my son-in-law, Rolly, teaches cooking at Johnson & Wales University. Oh He's been a chef for 25 years. But he just finished a PhD in Do, and actually he wrote his PhD and created uh, the foundation, the Jacques Pepin Foundation. He uh, used all my tape. I have hundreds of tape of technique and all that, that I've been on PBS. I have 30 books and all that. He used that to work with community kitchen and the community kitchen all over the country to teach people who have been a bit uh, a problem in life. We're talking about homeless people, 
We're talking about people with drug addicts, former drug addicts. We people about veterans. You know, people like this who are not young, 20, 30, 40, 50 years old, working in community kitchen. We try to teach them those basics of cooking with the tape and with the thing so that they can redo their life. And this is a great thing that he's doing there. He's done a great thing with that. It's incredible. And it, it must feel pretty wonderful that a your daughter married a cook because i think that speaks a lot to how she feels about you and b that her husband admires you so much that he would do that with his time yeah you can go on the jacquepeperfoundation.com and see it's funny that you say that too because when claudine was a teenage uh, before she didn't know what she would do in life but she knew only one thing that she would never do what her mother or her father is doing so, of course, she went to BU, got a degree in philosophy, went into graduate school, spent a year in Europe in the Brussels to do a paper on the defense of Europe. And then she came back, uh, started work to work for uh, Dom Perignon to sell champagne, and then met a chef and married a chef. <laughs> so the whole thing turned around. She couldn't escape it. Right. The thing is... Um... You have so much drive. You're easily happy, you can tell. Things make you happy. Simple things make you happy. And meanwhile, you've done so much. Your work is so prolific. So clearly, something drives you to keep teaching, to keep helping other people. What is that? What keeps you making things? I'm already hungry. (laughs) And I run really for a glass of wine. So this is it. You know, you get the greatest... Meet in the world, you say, I'm not eating again ever. Ah, four or five hours later, you say, I'm going to have some. Yes, that keeps you on. I also have heard and seen a little bit that you've been painting and selling your art. Yes. I mean, what got I you an, into that? I have an outside, a, a friend of mine, Tom Hopkins, with the, my photographer and so forth, he's running it. And it's fantastic. I mean, no, I've been painting for uh, 55 years. 60 years forever uh, since I came to this country. So I've done some art show, but I've done doing a lot of chicken. In fact, I'm doing a book of chicken now, which is a hundred illustration of chicken that I've done with some story about chicken and all that. I'm working on that book now. So, yeah. That is so awesome. What do you feel is the, what is similar between painting and cooking? There are similarities, you know, when you work as a chef behind the stove, you never have a recipe. And let's say that uh, someone ordered, you know, a piece of beef sauté with mushroom too. In your head, you sauté this too, and in front of you in a professional kitchen, you have some, uh, some white stock, brown stock, some sauce. So you taste the sauce, you add a bit of that, a bit of wine, you taste, you add a bit of this, a bit of that. You don't think about it. You add it until it reaches the right taste. Then you send it out. Five minutes later, you have the same order. If someone was to, to take note exactly what you did, it would never be the same. Because the beef may be thicker or two, or it goes faster, or you cook with gas, electric. So you adjust, you adjust, you add, 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 adjust, and it's right. So because the idea is not to duplicate a typewritten page on a recipe, it's to duplicate a taste each time. So when you paint, it's a bit of the same thing. It's not like I am in front of my canvas and I say maybe I need some yellow and I go to find a tube of yellow too. No, I have to have all of this in front of me. And when I start, I add a bit of that and add a bit of that, like it tastes good, it looks good. You know, it becomes automatic. I mean, the painting takes a life of its own. 
just like the recipe. And I keep adding because it looked good, it looked great, fine right here. So, so there is that type of very subjective, very automatic way of, uh, of uh, planning and all that. So, yeah, I love that. I want to ask you another question, which has to do with, I said before that you seem to me like so many things in life, simple things make you happy. And I've gotten to speak to so many people. And what's fascinating to me is how many human beings struggle with being unhappy, like so unhappy. And the other day I saw a video that said that joy is actually our default. We know how to be in a state of joy, but so many people, we don't, they don't let themselves enjoy food, enjoy something, enjoy a moment, paint for the sake of just painting, all of those things. Yeah, but you know, people look at life the wrong way. You know, uh, there is always that we say the bottle is half full of half empty. For me, it's always half full. It's still half empty. And when you look in life, you know, you can, if you start looking at the people who are better than you and richer than you and have this that you don't have, this is the wrong way. Look, the other way are the people who have no limb, all kind of problem and sickness and are poor and have nothing to eat and feel how happy you should be. And you are, you know, so you have to look at, at life the right way. You know, there is always people who, who, who envy you and, and think that, you know, have much more than what to, and for most people, people have a lot. They don't realize what they are. You're you know, so they should right. be happy with what they are. Yeah, so. You're so right. And it's such an yeah. important perspective. And, you know, we talk about social distance now so much, but before COVID, we had 54, 54% of our country was taking some kind of antidepressant. And the reason right. they listed, the number one reason people listed was a feeling of sad loneliness, right? So, yeah, that's so good. I think about what you've said today and how important it is to sit together, to eat together, right? To be together. And I also hear you talking about all the things you do that keep you present in the moment, using your hands, looking for the mushrooms, smelling the apple, cooking, painting, right? Right. So often people are scrolling their phone. They're not present. They're, they're, right. they're running away from the moment. So how can you explain a little bit about how much of your life you're using your hands and your smell and you're in the moment and yes. how that maybe has affected your happiness? Yes. And your eye, go sit outside, look at that tree, look at the sky. You know, I look at my garden when it starts growing. It's already a miracle. Wow. Those things are great. You know, look at outside. I go sit with my granddaughter. I am by the sea here uh, in Connecticut. Go sit at the beach. Look at the sky. Look at the dog going by. You know, look at the Yes, look at what's growing. Don't run. When you run at the, the beach, you don't see all the flowers and whatever is along the road and all that. Walk slowly. Look at what's there. Look at the sky and all that. Yeah, you look, you taste, you, you smell, and you feel happy. You know, you have to. I think that's such a beautiful place to leave the conversation. I I love talking to you. Tell me, tell all of us where we can follow you, where we can find your whatever else you're doing online and your book. Well, I don't do Facebook. My daughter (laughs) does Facebook for me. So, you know, if you look at Facebook, uh, my Facebook, you'll see me there. Then the the Jacques Pepin Foundation that my son-in-law does will tell you all the people we work with. And of course, the, the outside Jacques Pepin. We will put a link okay. to it in the show notes and we'll send it out to everybody. 
All right. Thank you for being you. You're Thank so you. lovable. You are more delicious than your food. If you really taste good bread and butter, you change your mind. Okay, fine. Stay you and stay healthy. And um, okay. I can't wait to put this out for everyone. Happy cooking to you. Thank you, honey. That was so much fun. Here are the takeaways. Number one, lighten up. You don't have to be so serious. Number two, cooking is the purest expression of love. Number three, sit down and put the phones away. Spend time together around the dinner table. Number four, moderation in moderation. Number five, always stay hungry. Number six, keep adding and adjusting until you reach the right taste, then send it out. And number seven, look at the sky, the birds going by, notice what's growing, don't run. Otherwise you miss the beauty along the road. Walk slowly and notice what's there. Thank you so much for listening. I know that there's so much going on. I know how precious your time is and it is so meaningful that you're here. We have so many good episodes coming up. So please make sure that you subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify or wherever you listen. And if you know someone who would love this episode, take a second right now and text the link, email the link to her or post about the show on your Instagram stories and tag me at kathy.heller so I can repost some and thank you. Remember, if you want to join me next week, I'm doing the most abundant year five-day free challenge. I'm going to be live every day next week doing a training. It's going to be so much fun. You can grab your spot at kathyheller.com slash abundance. You're the best. I'll leave you with a song and I'll talk to you Thursday. Time.